reading today from Acts chapter 14. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul and he was, as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed. And he called out, stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles... Uh, Barnabas and Paul heard of this they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting friends why are you doing this we too are only human like you we are bringing you good news telling you to turn from those worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in the past he let all nations go their own way yet he has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Uh, I feel like a little bit of a tour guide in this series. Uh, and I don't know if you're into watching tours uh, on TV. Uh, I got into that a little bit more uh, during lockdown um, and I found myself watching train rides, right? And um, I kind of thought to myself, uh, I remember one, watching one particular episode of Chris Tarrant and he's catching a train in Morocco and I thought, that'd be a really cool thing to do. I'd love to go and catch a train in Morocco. Now that's a weird feeling because I've actually caught a train in the developing world. Right? I caught an overnight train once from Penang, which is kind of in Malaysia, um, all the way into Thailand. And let me tell you, it wasn't a fantastic experience. Um, the food was okay, the hygiene was disgusting, um, and the accommodation was wanting. Um, we, we kind of uh, slept in a, well, basically on, on your chair. Um, and then they put, you know, uh, and... and and yet I'm watching this show thinking to myself, actually, that'd be kind of cool. I'd like to do that. And I think we're supposed to feel the same in the book of Acts. As we watch Paul, the missionary, going to various places and sharing about Jesus in ways that fit with the culture that he's trying to reach, I think we're supposed to feel something like, oh, actually, I'd kind of like to do that too. That's sort of how it is that I'm supposed to behave and connect and share and be a witness in the culture, in the context in which I happen to find myself. And we've seen Paul in some changing contexts, and we kind of get that too, right, as our context is changing. Well, before we jump into Paul in Lystra... Let's just kind of do that little in-between bit. He leaves the synagogue in Antioch and he goes through Iconium. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas 
went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. I've got to tell you, I don't sit easy with that verse. I grew up in uh, Reformed churches, now called Christian Reformed churches. Uh, we emphasise the sovereignty of God. And to read a verse that says that Paul communicated so effectively that people believed unsettles me. I, I, like, oh, but doesn't God save people? You know, it's not about Paul. It's not about us. We're fallen, sinful human beings. Um, it's about God. And yet, I've just dropped out, haven't I? I'm back. Uh, give me another mic if it stops working. Um, and so, uh, I'd kind of, rather the emphasis fell in a different place. So I go check it out in the Greek, and it turns out that maybe this is slightly over-translated. Uh, a better translation would be something along the lines of, Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But that's still kind of close, isn't it? There is some sense in which what Luke is saying to us is that Paul's communication strategy, which varies from setting to setting, was actually part of the reason it was so effective. And we're supposed to sit up and take note. Uh, but the pattern unfolds as usual. The Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas leave the Jewish setting, they leave the synagogue and they go to the marketplace speaking boldly for the Lord who confirms the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So the evidence for the Jews is the scriptures but he doesn't use that in the marketplace. Instead, there are miracles that are, and I love this phrase, confirming the message. The emphasis is not miracles in and of themselves are proof, and if we could simply perform miracles today, everyone would believe. No, it's the message. But the message is not a standalone message. There's actually a confirmation of the message by the miraculous, by the power of the Spirit. And I think um, we too are called to confirm our message with, it might be good works, it might even from time to time be the miraculous, if God so chooses. Well, the consequence, the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot amongst both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and to stone them. Are you having a sense of deja vu? Is this all kind of sounding familiar? It ought to be. Uh, and, and what we're seeing is this cycle that's playing out through the book of Acts and is going to continue to unfold. And it looks something like this in a standard cycle. Paul goes to town. There's a Jewish synagogue in town. He goes there first. He preaches um, uh, from the Bible. And some people are interested even some Gentiles who happen to go to the synagogue, uh, some people respond, but a bunch of people don't, and the Jews get jealous, and they chase them out of the synagogue, in which case Paul goes down the road and speaks to the Gentiles in the marketplace, and again, has some success, often backed up with some miracles, 
Uh, but the Jews remain jealous and actually stir up trouble across the whole city, and Paul is kind of chased out of the city, and he goes to another town. So that's kind of the cycle that we see played out again and again with some variations. Maybe one variation comes when there's no synagogue in town, so Paul begins his ministry in the marketplace. And that's exactly what we see in Lystra. In Lystra, there's a person who's lame, hasn't walked since birth. He's listening, Paul's speaking. Paul looks directly at him, sees his faith and says, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped to his feet and began to walk. It's kind of cool. But I'm also having a sense of deja vu as I read this. I'm thinking to myself, hang on a sec. That sounds like some other miracle I've heard. A lame person who walks. Sounds like Peter and John going to the temple. Uh, and I think I meant to hear that echo. I think Luke is intentionally constructing his gospel in such a way that I'm hearing echoes of Peter. Because everybody knows who Peter is. He's the guy who Jesus called to be a disciple. He's the guy who walked on the water. He's the guy who distributed the food to the 5,000. Um, he's the guy who stands up and preaches on the day of Pentecost. He's the guy who performs miracles after Jesus has risen. He's the guy who there are thousands of converts on the day of Pentecost and more converts are added to their number daily. Uh, he's the guy who suffers. What happens when he heals somebody who's thrown in jail? And all of this comes together and, and it undermines Peter's authority as an apostle. But who the heck is Paul? Because he didn't walk with Jesus for three years. He hasn't been taught by Jesus. Jesus didn't send him in the same way that he sent Peter. And so people would be kind of like, mm, we're not sure about this guy. Yes, he preaches, but can he perform miracles? So far, he's managed to not heal somebody, but actually somebody seems to go blind. Is that a miracle? Seems back to front. Uh, and, and so there would be questions about the status of Paul. And so I think what Luke is doing for us in this passage is he's saying, not only can Paul perform miracles, but the very miracle that Peter performs at the beginning of his ministry is the miracle that we see at the beginning of Paul's ministry. It's an affirmation of his status as an apostle. And, and we know from the scriptures that, of course, he was sent by Jesus. He does have an encounter on the Damascus Road. But that would be perceived to be perhaps a second-hand rumour by many in the first century. And so here we have a confirmation of Paul's status as an apostle. Well, let's come back to this interaction in Lystra. When the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they shouted in the local language, presumably which Paul and Barnabas don't understand, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he's the chief speaker, so that's two uh, local gods. And the chief priest of the temple of Zeus, who's out of town, gets wind of this, comes down, uh, brings some bulls to uh, offer sacrifices, um, and the crowd want to offer. 
a strange story, right? What's going on here? Um, Paul and Barnabas, two public speakers, rock up in town in the marketplace. Actually, that's a thing. That's not that uncommon. There's like traveling sophists in the first century, right? And, and they rock up in town and they give talks, public speeches. And people don't have televisions and they go out and listen. And if they think the guy's a really good rhetorician and they will know how to spot a good rhetorical talk, then they will give money. And they will become, even some of them, one of his disciples, one of his followers, right? So this happens and everybody's, oh, okay, let's have a bit of a listen. But then somebody's healed and the game changes. There's a recognition that this is just another level. Uh, but also part of the folklore of Lycia is that two gods, Zeus and Hermes, turned up in human form and the locals didn't recognise the gods and the gods were kind of put out by this. And so the word gets around that, oh, maybe this is the gods and they've come back again and there's an affirmation of some divine power here by these miracles. And so they put two and two together and get four. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Well, Paul responds with a speech. And again, I think Luke is writing to a first century audience, those of whom can read, know how to spot a good rhetorical argument, right? They go to school and they do reading, writing, arithmetic and rhetoric. Uh, the four R's. Um, and long may it be so. Um, and so uh, here's the structure of the talk. Uh, he begins with not fellow Israelites like he does in Antioch, but this time friends. We're all part of humanity. There's a, a fraternity of humanity that, that I am like you and you are like me. Uh, and then his facts are, we're all humans. Don't sacrifice to me. I'm not one of the gods. I'm just a human being like you, and, and like you, um, I, I suffer. Uh, I have reasons to cry out to the spiritual realm, uh, and, and you guys experience the worthlessness of idols. Right? There's a, there's a guy who's lame. Presumably, his parents offered sacrifices to the gods. Can you please heal our son? Worthless, didn't happen. And so Paul is getting in touch with this sense of the, the, the suffering and the hopelessness of life. Right? But his solution, his thesis is, well, actually, your gods are worthless. They can't listen. But there is one true God, the kind of God who can heal and you ought to cry out to him. And his proofs about this God are that he made creation, that he's just, I'll come to that in a minute, and that he brings the rains. And then the last part of the sermon is the epilogue, which we never get to in this instance because um, incidents end up cutting the sermon short. So let me speak briefly about the context. Paul's in Lystra. Right? In Antioch, he's gone to a synagogue, a city with lots of Jews, and so he's speaking to a Jewish audience, which was different from the audience in Cyprus. Now he's in a rural farming district, and there's a whole lot of farmers. And so what does he do? 
he uses natural theology. He talks about the fact that God brings the rains. God brings the seasons. God causes the crops to grow in the right season. And because of that, you guys can eat and experience the simple joys of life. He doesn't quote the Bible. Back in Antioch, he did. He's telling the story of the Old Testament and the prophecies that point to Jesus and how the Jews are awaiting a Messiah. He doesn't do that here. He doesn't say, by the way, guys, it says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and you can see God's glorious because of his creation. He doesn't quote the Bible at all. He talks the language of the locals. They get farming, they get seasons. God's behind all of this. But that doesn't mean all that he says is appealing, it makes sense to his audience. He actually gets to a point where he has to say something that's a bit different, something that's a bit combative, something that's going to grate. You guys think there's lots of gods and you think you've got your local gods, but actually it turns out your gods are worthless and the God of the Jews is the one God of the whole universe, of the whole world. And in the past, this God used to let you do what you wanted. Uh, you could be mistaken for thinking that your local gods were yours and the Jewish gods were the Jewish gods and they should follow the Jewish gods. But it turns out that the God of the Jews is the God of the whole universe and he won't overlook not worshipping him in the future. That's part of what's new about the new gospel, right? About the new covenant. But you could have some sense of awareness of this one God of the universe because he has not left himself without a testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heavens and crops in their seasons. Jesus argues the same way, doesn't he? Uh, he uses creation. God causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust, Sermon on the Mount. Um, God provides for you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So here is Paul using natural theology. Why? Because his audience gets that. That makes sense to them. But he's also saying that a season of lesser judgment has passed and it's his responsibility to communicate that God now expects them to respond or to come under judgment. Well, the cycle rolls around again. Some Jews come from Antioch and from Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Now these are farmers, right? Some of them will have animals, livestock. I think they know how to spot a dead being from a living one. Paul's pretty beaten up, right? But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The very people who've just stoned him to the point of indiscernible from death. And he goes back to that city. 
That's nuts. I don't know about you. I might go to the next city. I actually think I'd likely pack up my bags and give up the ministry altogether. But Paul goes back into the city. And then the next day, he leaves for Derby. So, a few application points. Here's the first. Paul continues to speak to the locals. Let me diagram this for you. On Cyprus, the people are particularly enamoured or persuaded by a sorcerer. The sorcerer is made blind by Paul. In Antioch, we've got a Jewish congregation who... For them, the scriptures are the greatest, the highest authority. And so Paul quotes the scriptures. And now he's with some rural farmers and he's going to use natural theology. And I take it that what we're meant to pick up from this is that you have a different sort of a message for a different audience. Paul is intentionally trying to be persuasive in ways that speak to the people who are listening to him. I find this very challenging, to be honest, because I'm guessing, like me, you have been taught how to share the gospel. You've been taught a gospel presentation or two or three. And most of them will have biblical quotes in them, right? So you're meant to say things like, at various points in your gospel presentation, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And your point is, well, the Bible says that you're a sinner. And then another verse you're likely to quote is, um, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In other words, the Bible says you're going to die because you're a sinner, but God is offering you eternal life through Jesus. Amen. All true. But here's the dilemma. Paul is not quoting the Bible. And Luke is intentionally telling you a story where Paul does not quote the Bible. Paul believes the Bible's authoritative because he quotes it in Antioch. But somehow Paul presents the gospel to a particular audience and feels no compulsion to quote the authority of Scripture in the presentation of the gospel. You know those gospel presentations we learnt? Uh, they kind of became a thing kind of in the 1950s, 1960s. For the 19th centuries before that, formulaic gospel presentations were not a thing. It was only in the middle to the end of the 20th century that the church decided that somehow we needed to package up the gospel in a particular way. Now, if mission was as simple as you've got to get the facts of the gospel right 
and those who are chosen by God will hear those facts and they will respond, if that's what mission was, you would assume that Jesus would have given us that talk somewhere in the Gospels, right? But it doesn't read like that. Jesus gives this answer to this person and a different answer to a different person and now Paul is doing precisely the same. Now, I'm not trying to be critical of the 20th century gospel presentations. I think they were a great version of what the 20th century needed. But the non-Christians I hang out with, they are not going to be persuaded that they are a sinner and they are not hanging out for a free gift of eternal life. Those are just not their questions. And I take it that what Luke and what the Bible is encouraging us to do is to speak in ways that are persuasive and engage with the yearnings of the people who are listening. And that is precisely what we want to do in our next series. We now live in what Sam Chan calls a sceptical world with people who don't want to be preached at And so we need to learn how to talk about Jesus without being perceived to be that guy. Third, natural theology is valid. Part of how we will do mission will include talking about our experiences, talking about things that happen in the natural world. And, and that's precisely what Paul does, and I think it's going to be appropriate for us to do that in certain ways. Now, yes, we will have to get to points like Paul does in his sermon and say things that the world will disagree with. But we can begin on more fertile, common ground. And I think we have a responsibility to do that. Lastly, to be a follower of Jesus is to suffer. Here's Paul, perhaps the greatest ever missionary, who's able to speak in such a way that many Jews and Gentiles believe. And what happens? He gets stoned. Peter preaches and then heals and he gets imprisoned. And Paul is stoned, they leave him for dead and he goes back into the city. Uh, I visited a jail last week in Melbourne and uh, the week before and um, I drove back in uh, the car with my son, Wes, and his wife, my daughter-in-law, Alex. And it's their car, they get to control the radio um, and it's a Sunday and so um, I'm listening to what they're listening to, um, which, because it's a Sunday, happened to be Two sermons. I'm kind of thinking, that's pretty cool. I'm glad my 
children listen to sermons on Sundays. Um, and the first one was one that happened to be on the Christian radio station, the main station in Melbourne. It was a sermon coming out of a church called Stairway, which is one of the big Penty churches in Melbourne. Um, and the sermon was called Graves into Gardens. It's a song that's up the charts, the Christian charts at the moment, right? We don't sing it here. Elevate is um, who wrote the song. Uh, and here's the chorus from the song. And the sermon was kind of taken from a line in this sermon. You turn mourning into dancing, beauty for ashes, shame into glory, graves into gardens, bones into armies, seas into highways. And, and they're biblical images that are all true. At a macro level, our world is moving from fallen brokenness outside of the garden to a new heaven and a new earth. And her sermon was an extended anecdote about how God was taking her graves and turning them into gardens. She was single into her 30s and got married. Uh, she was in ministry in this church and it wasn't quite working and then she got called to ministry in that church and she was flourishing. Well, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, what happens if you went to her old church? Uh, or uh, what happens if you're single? Or what happens if you're single again? What would Paul have made of that sermon? My, my sense is that in the macro, God turns all of human history from graves into gardens, but that is not always our experience. In fact, the other sermon we listen to, it's fascinating, right? I'm driving back to my father-in-law's funeral, seeing my daughter suffering in hospital, hearing two sermons on suffering. The second sermon is by Tim Mackey who is uh, the voice of most of the Bible project. And it was on the book of Job, and it was brilliant. Let me encourage you to listen to it. It was different, <laughs> but it was brilliant. Uh, and his point, um, or his conclusions were, hey, Jesus suffers, Job suffers unjustly. In a way where Job, because he suffers, can intervene and... Uh, re redeem his friends and you want to be a follower of Jesus and you will suffer too well where do we fit into today's passage where do we find ourselves kind of thinking oh am I meant to be on this missionary journey with Paul somehow? What's my status? And I want to suggest to you that like Paul was sent, you too have been sent. When Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, that is true of all disciples, not just the first 12. And part of that is that you and I will suffer. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to life, to life to the full, to joy, to hope, and to mission 
and to suffering. All of them somehow are woven together in the one piece of fabric. And my sense is that whatever your individual journey is, is that part of our corporate journey is that we have been through a season of suffering. And perhaps what God might be saying to us today is some disciples are going to come and patch you up and put you back together and you need to get up off the ground and go back into the city that God has asked you to witness to. Let me pray for us. God, your word is more than just abstract truths. It's a story. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story in which we find ourselves. And as we hear echoes of previous incarnations of the story, we're reading ourselves into your story this morning. May we faithfully tell this chapter. May we reflect Jesus and how he responds to suffering in ways that bring glory to you.